Welcome to episode four in our series, How to Build an Integrated Health and Care System. In each episode, we will be examining a particular feature of integrated systems and how you go about practically applying some of the lessons from successful leaders around the world. Today, we are talking about using data every day, or more accurately, exploring our relationship with data and the information contained within it. I'm Dr. David Hamilton, your host and guide in this journey. I've spent over 30 years working in the NHS in various guises as consultant, physician, director, chief executive, and I'm acutely aware of how difficult it is to promote true integration and collaboration among health and care partners. Today, I will be talking to experts from New Zealand and the UK about their experience of using data successfully. We've never been so blessed with information about our state of health as individuals and indeed the health of our systems. The current global pandemic has made us all much more familiar, at least with seeing public health experts presenting data about numbers of patients affected by conditions, hospital beds occupied and various markers of pressure in health and care systems. The impact of the pandemic on elective care delivery is now coming into very sharp focus as we grapple with the issues of how to treat huge numbers of patients who've had their care interrupted, deferred and now face much longer waits than they expected. As well as this, we're becoming increasingly concerned about the impact on health outcomes and health inequalities in particular. How we use available data to target interventions to positively influence rather than worsen inequalities is now an imperative. However, are we ready for this revolution in our relationship with data and how we use it? I start this exploration by talking to Justin Kennington, Chief Executive of Lightfoot Solutions Group, currently operating in the UK, Australia and New Zealand, where he started working with the ambulance service, but quickly moved on to joining up data more generally. And he contributed intimately to the hugely successful integration efforts, which we've heard much about previously in this series, in Canterbury. I began by asking Justin how he thinks we are doing with our current use of data. So I think we're very focused at the moment on uh, reporting and counting widgets and gadgets and numbers, very much focused on performance targets. And and very often they've got a a red, amber, green um, uh, measurement around them in terms of uh, escalation or alerting uh, and monitoring status. Uh, I see very few systems who are looking to use data to redesign models of care, um, inform clinical decision-making and challenge clinical decision, challenge clinical decision-making when necessary. Um, but that's that's the journey I think the systems now need to go on, which is part of democratizing data across health systems, not individual organizational silos. I think the the key going forwards is that systems need to function as a system, not as a, not as an organizational silo, and they need to design their data where it's all connected up. So you've got a whole cross system view now. In the UK, that's particularly relevant with the formalization of the ICSs. How can you design a model of care for a patient if you don't know where and how they touch the system? If you're a mental health patient uh, or mental health client, 
and you touch the system in lots of different places for lots of different things and that's not visible, how can you, how can you optimize that model of care to get the best outcome for the patient? And I think that links back nicely to some of the learnings for us for Canterbury over the years to design models of care based around not wasting patients' time. And if you can not waste their time, you can um, save the system outcomes and, and benefits as well as patient. So let's let's I'm talk about that. Somewhat. <laughs> no, no, that's great. So let, let's talk about that work in Canterbury because you've contrasted the kind of performance management approach which people have traditionally taken to data with the approach you took in Canterbury. And you, I think, were really an integral part of that Canterbury journey. So just tell us a little bit about how they started to use their data differently. So one of the things from our point of view is that Canterbury were well advanced in their vision uh, for 2020. This is back in 2007. Um, and how they wanted to work, operate, function as a system, designed around some, some core values and, and approaches, one of which is, as, I, as I've mentioned previously, um, uh, not wasting the patient's time. So the opportunity from our point of view in, in the data is to say, can we connect the different data sets and silos and tribes and organizations together uh, and provide a patient journey view of that data, which is not the traditional linked uh, data set. And from that, be able to provide uh, levels of insight and uh, intelligence that would allow clinicians to design models of care for their patients with the right outcomes, not wasting their time. And, and that was because Canterbury was so far down that journey and that thinking, it was very easy for us to, to slot in and um, uh, also follow a, 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 an additional theme, which was democratizing data. It was a very clear decision over there that we want to become an evidence-based decision-making organization. And that's as much about the cultural journey now and getting it into business as usual as it is um, saying, I want to buy an analytics platform or some other tool set. And I think if, if, you, if you ask or look to say, what's the magic source uh, that, that makes um, uh, Signals from Noise, our platform, one of the enablers, it's providing the insights and intelligence alongside the Canterbury ways of working, so the methods that go with it to get a level of clinical engagement, to design models of care for the patients not wasting their time, uh, to get um, those outcomes and having that outcomes-based focus as a system. And, and you described that use of data with clinicians very clearly there, Justin. And sometimes we can view the, the analysis and the analysts of the data as being quite separate from those clinical conversations. But I think you've, you've modelled your way of working quite differently and, and you and the people who are producing the data seem much more intimately attached to the clinicians and the clinical conversations. I think... Uh, you're absolutely right. I think the, the, the fundamental is um, there, are, there are two types of system who want to change things. There are people who will go down the improvement journey and want to improve and refine existing processes, many of which have been built up over many, many years and got more and more complex in our complex adaptive health systems. Uh, and then we've had to put quality and safety over the top of them because they don't quite work how they, they should do. Uh, and, and you can improve that process and you can keep refining it and you, you'll get your 1% to 3% improvement if that's what you're trying to do. But what the systems haven't been able to do that, that 
we tend to see across the world is be able to, to step back and, and this method of designing the model of a care by a clinician or clinicians uh, with everybody in a room to, to step change. And it's that focus on not wasting patients' time. How would you like that for your mum? How would you like your mum's experience to be? Um, is, is a very good leveler when you're in a conversation. Um, and I, I remember a Canterbury story, uh, going back to the COPD example very early on, and Canterbury's approach of having everybody uh, in the room, which included a consumer. And um, uh, I, she was immensely powerful in bringing uh, a load of clinicians and cross-system participants uh, to focus on the patient, when, when everybody assumed that she wanted a clinical outcome and, and therefore wanted to have the best life possible, fantastic. But she said actually what, what she wanted was that when she went to the supermarket and when she coughed, that people around her would tell her to stop smoking because she was going to get lung cancer. And that was what was important to her. And when you're in a workshop of 50, 60 people, and, and a patient can relay that experience. It's a fantastic leveler uh, and, and puts everybody uh, into the right space as to, right, how do we design this? What's the evidence? What's the data? And, and that ending up in a 50% reduction in, in COPD occupied beds maintained for 10 years. Wow, that's really impressive. And the, the m- most impressive thing there is not the description of how fantastic the data set was that you used and how brilliantly you manipulated it, but how you combined data with the voice of a real person in the room. So that, that's really amazing. And, that, and it probably typifies the kind of Canterbury approach, if I'm honest, uh, Justin, because that's kind of what they say consistently. Absolutely. There, there was a further data story for us that went, went with that because uh, Canterbury very good working with primary care and having primary care lead and look after their, their patients. Um, but, it, but it was interesting being able to identify the COPD patients who were attending and being admitted into hospital and understanding that even though the primary care response was as strong as it was, uh, their condition would exacerbate and then they would call an ambulance. And the ambulance would turn up and see the traditional conditions that you would expect. And it might be blue lips or something like that, which would be the trigger point to say, yep, we're going we're gonna to take you to an ED. And lo and behold, we'd admit you. Now, um, if we hadn't had the ambulance data in that context and been able to identify that there was a cohort of patients doing that and, and further un- understanding that actually they were doing it in hours, not out of hours, it became possible to do what Canterbury was so good at, which prevention, and have a conversation with um, a cohort of patients, primary care practitioners, and say, how do we wrap around a service so that they can escalate locally before they get to the exacerbation point that means they need an ambulance? And therefore we can, and and there was almost a 30% reduction in that cohort attending ED overnight once that process started. Following the successful work in Canterbury, Lightfoot have since been working in Wales, supporting Cardiff and Vale, and indeed now the other Welsh health boards, and have also begun working in the NHS southeast region in England. So there has been a little bit of a, a ripple effect, if you like, if that's the right way to, do, to describe it. I think people have got to the point 
particularly with ICSs coming through about we've got to start designing models of care for patients based on them being looked after well and in their own homes, which is another Canterbury phrase. And um, if we're going to do that, we've got to step change how we deliver these services. We're not just going to be able to do this incrementally. And, And I would advocate the best way to do that is to have the data and insights to everybody across the system that shows how those models of care are working now. And with the methods, have the, the workshops, the tools to, to bring together how you would then design those for the patients not wasting the time in, in the new ICS environment. Great, that's really helpful, Justin. Um, and could you just tell us a little bit about the, the types of thing you're now doing with data? Because you're doing some really interesting stuff that I know about in terms of dynamic plants. So just, just describe some of that for us, because I think people will find it interesting. So... We've, we've had what we've called, a, which is not very health-centric, but a production planning uh, offering for uh, elective or, and all the way up to system work, which during COVID, with the um, uh, backlogs for electives, the wait lists, the referrals, all of that coming together, and now these huge queues and, and problems, um, we've sort of found a way of blending uh, an understanding of what's coming through that hasn't come through because of COVID alongside um, new referrals, wait, wait lists, both at an outpatient and an inpatient level and being able with the Royal College guidelines, prioritization of that and making that dynamic for the systems, um, adjusting for the theater minutes per procedure and, and the, the length of stay at a procedure level so that systems can now joined up plan what they can and can't do The important bit, of course, off the back of that is the understanding of lower priority work, which is never going to be got to. And therefore, the enabling of the conversation that says, so um, are there things that don't have to be done in a theatre, could be done in a clean room, could be done in community? Um, How are we going to stop people deconditioning while they're waiting for for surgery procedures? And one of the great things with with the Cardiff approach is that they've, they've got primary care involved. Uh, having understood, so we've been supporting at a specialty level, um, primary care then being in the room at the same time and agreeing with primary care how we're then going to either change threshold levels, uh, referral levels and the threshold for them, um, whether or not we would do things differently in community or clean rooms uh, and how we might just totally redesign a model of care. And then The nice piece then is that that's automatically added to the health pathway system so that it's on every GP's desk the following day or as soon as the new model of care is approved so that we've got consistency across the whole population in that area overnight and every GP then knows what the referral mechanism, what they need to do uh, in the the steps and stages with the the support of primary uh, secondary care. So that's been a a nice step change and, and some demonstrable and measurable outcomes very quickly in, in terms of changes that happen off the back of that. And I think you're right to call that a step change, Justin, because your description there of using the data to describe very clearly things that are we're not just going to get around to doing anymore. So there are procedures that we are just never going to get done because they're n- not of high enough priority. But making the data 
the start of that conversation about, all right then, so what are we going to do? What are the different pathways? What are the alternatives that we need to put in place? Is really, I think, both fundamentally important and actually very unusual. So it's unusual to have someone using the data in a way to provoke those, what are actually quite difficult conversations. I think there's a huge um, challenge because you've got a conversation with surgeons who just want to go back to how it was. Um, others who absolutely understand things have got to be fundamentally different. Uh, an opportunity, never waste a crisis, to have a conversation with primary care and how you might support primary care to do some of these things um, differently. The, the other angle, I think, which is, which is also hugely important here is you're now able to give the centre a view of what you really can do and can't do by the balance of the backlog with the uh, waitlists and, and new referrals coming through in terms of expectation and understanding and therefore what should be funded and resourced, uh, whether it might be diagnostics, whether it might be MDTs, what, what, uh, you know, whatever approach you want to take, uh, the regionalization of orthopedics or, or other investments that systems can then make and support to manage these cohorts going forwards. And that for me is, is the, the opportunity that the systems have off the back of this to do this in a in an evidence-based structured way, and then of course monitor it and measure it to know whether it's working or not. Not everything's gonna work first time or there are gonna be a whole series of unintended consequences. The sooner they're visible and evidence, the sooner you can have the conversation about how you refine it. It's not a project or a pilot. It's, a, it's how you're going to do things and you keep refining it until you've got it where you want it to be. All of this does seem like a very different approach and direction of travel to that which we appear to be on in terms of how systems use data to make decisions. I also turn to thinking a little about population health management and I spoke to Stephen Childs. Stephen is the Chief Executive of North of England Commissioning Support which is the most successful and one of the few remaining commissioning support organisations in the UK. They supply data services to a large number of systems across the country. And I asked Stephen what he hoped for in our future relationship with data and how we use it. My aspiration, my ambition is to be able to support integrated care boards, the systems that they operate in, with, with realising their ambition for data and information to, to drive really effective population health management. We're all still learning what, what, does, that, what does that really mean? Um, but it, for those systems that, that recognise the importance of a sea change in their approach to the use of data, it's just doing anything and everything within our powers to help them realise that. I mean, over the last few years, we've been frustrated because we've, we've We've sold a service or a tool like Radar into a, a clinical commissioning group to what turned out to be uh, a, a small number of, of uh, committed and knowledgeable uh, users of information. But when they leave, the organisation doesn't see the value in it. And, and we've had patients, we've had we've had CCGs have decommissioned, switched off Radar, not not in in preference or sorry, in deference to another product that they would prefer, uh, but simply because they didn't see the point in having a business intelligence system like Radar, which beggars belief, but, but, that's, but that's, what, that's what's been happening. 
So I think helping these new integrated care boards and, and also I should add in provider collaboratives as well um, to understand whilst they have this hunger and this ambition, what the art of the possible is with the, the tools, with the information sets that we can already produce um, such that we have a far more sophisticated and an informed approach to managing health inequalities and bringing that all the way down to an individual clinician, an individual practice nurse, or district nurse or social worker to be able to help them identify the people that if they change their approach to managing and supporting that, that patient, that family, um, this is the impact we could make. So through the power of the data and the information we have, making it real for people to make relatively small changes, the cumulative effect of which might enable us to, make, to start making some serious inroads into health inequalities. That would be a great outcome for us. Given what we have heard from Justin and Stephen, I decided to turn to our old friend Carolyn Gullery, former head of planning, funding and analytics in Canterbury, and I asked her what lessons she thought that we might learn from the work that she led both in New Zealand and also now that she's here working with us in the UK. So there's a couple of things. First of all, um, we need to get the data linked up. So um, the uh, health system is still looking at data in silos and getting those silos to come together so that you get a genuine view of a patient journey and a genuine view of what resources you're actually using to deliver care to patients, which is part. Of, this is all about making sure that we allocate our resources in the best possible way, because it ultimately comes back to that. And in all health systems in the world, this most scarce resource is going to end up being workforce time because that's what's going to happen as the populations age and the workforce ages and the dynamics are going to lead to us needing to make best use of our very scarce resource, which will be workforce time. So we need to join the pieces up. We need to move away from the idea of only using data for performance reporting and targets and um, financial reporting, because that's um, I mean, finance data is absolutely perfectly useful um, for the same thing, but you need to be looking at looking at it through through that time series analysis type lens, and understanding the variation in the system. And and everyone has been learning about statistical process control, you know, SPC, as an improvement science about using that. But what I notice is that we're still using it as a project. We're using a piece of it. We're doing an improvement program over here rather than embedding it as this is just the way we organise our system. So in the Canterbury system, it, it, set the, it, it was informed the rosters, it informed the resource allocation, it informed the capital business cases. All of that came off that one platform of the data. But as you said, it was shared because data is only powerful when you share it. And... The whole reason I think that we keep on redesigning health systems is because we don't have a shared view of the data, which means you can't have trust. So the people funding the health system don't trust that the health system is delivering in the most efficient way because they can't see it. And the kind of reporting that we're currently doing, 
which is largely about you know, rank reports and numbers on a page in an Excel spreadsheet, is never going to tell people the story of what a system is really doing, but also what a system is really capable of. So I've been looking at some of the systems, as you know, and you look at the data, and if you take a time series approach, you can see how the process is working. So if you've got an emergency department that constantly delivers, you know, within 60 to 70% within target, and has been doing that for the last three years, it's not going to hit its target. <laughs> the process needs to change. But instead, what, what we do is we keep on thinking that there's some kind of intervention that we can do, or, you know, if you beat the horse harder, it will go faster. But it, it actually doesn't work that way. You need to step back now, understand what bits of that whole process from the front door to the back door, what are they doing? Where are our blocks? Where are the things that aren't working right? Where's the time for us to take time out, waiting time out of the system and redesign the process? But that's not how we're using the data at the moment. But the one thing that I would really say is most important is that we need to be looking at the data through that time series lens, because that's when you get the insight. You need to connect the data up so that you can see a whole system journey and everybody needs to be able to see it. Having heard some fascinating insights about data and how we use it, I can see there are some things that we can do collectively within systems that would really help our efforts. Democratising data would be a good start. However, sharing data as if it belong to the system as a whole rather than individual organisations is still not universal. Joining up disparate data sources is now becoming increasingly the norm and is essential if we are to get a coherent view of how things look from a patient or person perspective. Moving away from using data as a monitoring tool for organisation and system performance towards using it to start conversations with clinicians, frontline staff and citizens about getting to grips with problems and designing solutions. Equally, using it real-time and not trying to drive a car by looking in the rear-view mirror is essential. While all of these individual steps make sense and would definitely be moving in the right direction, I'm minded to think that what is really required is a complete reset in terms of our relationship with data. It's not a change in strategy we need. It's culture, stupid. In our next episode, we look at our whole approach to problem solving in complex adaptive systems. I'll be talking to experts from Yale University and exploring one possible approach. If you want to chat more about integrated health systems, you can find me on Twitter at DavidHambleton1 or visit dhleadershipalliance.co.uk. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of how to build an integrated health and care system. Goodbye.